0: If you have your Bibles or your scripture journal, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 8. Luke and chapter 8 as we continue our study through uh, the gospel of Luke that we began back in November. We get to chapter 8. And we're going to kind of take a bigger section, but you'll see why as we go how it's all connected in verses 1 through 21, okay? Luke 8 verses 1 through 21, It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well as always. If you'd follow along there, if you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke 8, starting in verse 1. God's Word says, Soon afterward, He, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with Him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell along thorns, and thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in Parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Now, no, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar, puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see that light. For nothing is hidden, that will not be made manifest. Nor is anything secret, that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who is not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Amen. It's God's word and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. If you grew up in the South or have lived here for any length of time, something you'll surely be familiar with is the concept of revival. Have you heard this word before? It's not unique to the South, you know, but it's been especially prevalent here for some time. Um, Odds are you in this room have attended a revival meeting, yes, or have at the very least seen them advertised, right, or publicized. I wonder what you think of when you hear that word revival. I think most people think of an event, yes, wherein A church hosts a speaker for several days. Uh, Maybe the event's held outside, maybe in those circus tents, you know, where there is plenty of singing and preaching and at the end of the service, the hearers are called to make some kind of decision and the success of the revival is measured by how many people have responded, right, at the end of the night or at the end of the week. Is that what kind of comes to your mind that you picture when you hear that word revival? Revival. Ian Murray wrote a fascinating book many years ago called Revival and Revivalism, okay? And in it, he traces revivals that happened in the 18th and 19th centuries, like what's known as the First and Second Great Awakenings. And he makes a distinction between revival and revivalism, okay? He says that revival actually happens through ordinary, regular experiences of faithfulness in the life of the church, that those who experienced revival during, like, the first great awakening, were not actually doing much different than what they had always done. Okay. On the other hand, revivalism is a sort of reverse engineering of revival, it's trying to make revival happen. Okay. It's periods of excitement that have been orchestrated through the techniques of man. In fact, one of the key architects of revivalism. Charles Finney, said that God was not even necessary to have revival. For Finney, whatever man could do to get people to respond, he should do. And the success of revival was purely based on those emotional responses from people who walked down the aisle at those meetings or sit on the mourner's bench, while songs that were written explicitly to evoke emotional responses were played. And if people responded, that was considered a success. But for those who led during the first great awakening, they didn't measure the success of revival as a key for us based on short-term responses or excitement. Murray says this, physical phenomena such as falling and swooning provided no safe means for distinguishing the permanent from the transitory. In other words, immediate excitement did not a revival make. What the leaders were after was long-term faithfulness. Murray says that they knew revival had happened not because there were weeping multitudes, unrestrained noise and high excitement, and in fact those things were largely absent during the first great awakening, and even purposefully avoided, but that people's lives were changed in the long run. Notes Murray, the presence of God and the measure of his working was judged by the deep impression made on the people by the power of divine truth. The larger fruitfulness of revival periods itself connected to labor and perseverance of the church in preceding years. Do you see? So you see these leaders knew that short-term excitement did not indicate that revival had taken place. What they wanted to see was not a quick response and then add those people to the church. But they waited and watched the lives of the people to see if over time they would simply be faithful in everyday ways to pursue obedience and the glory of Christ through ordinary means of grace. Like planting the seeds, they knew that faithfulness could only be known once the tree reached the point of fruit bearing. Only then will it be known if the tree is good or not. Only then will you know if it's truly rooted in the soil. This is the main crux of our text this morning. In this famous parable by Jesus, we see the same lessons that those who saw revival 200 years ago knew. Which is the key to true conversion, to true fellowship with Jesus, is not short-term excitement. Nor a mere hearing of the word of the gospel, but long-term faithfulness that shows that one has truly heard the word and allowed it to take root into their hearts. So let's walk through this text and see what the Lord has for us. Okay, So Luke starts off in verses 1-3. through 3. With a summary statement of Jesus' activities. And he will do this frequently. We are told that Jesus continued to go through the cities and did what? He proclaimed the good news of what? The kingdom of God. What is the good news of the kingdom? It's that the fulfillment of God's promise was at hand through God's agent. Through whom the blessing could be realized. This had broken into time and history. This is the message of the good news of the kingdom. Then he says, the twelve disciples were with him, and that there were also women whom Jesus had healed who began to follow him as well. Now, for our ears, this seems probably pretty normal, but there's scandal here in this context. Okay, Rabbis like Jesus in the first century typically did not have female disciples. And if they did, they absolutely did not travel together. Yet, what do we see here? Both that Jesus has female disciples and they travel with him. Because Jesus' kingdom is what? It's different. It's different. He includes people from all walks of life if they respond to the good news of the kingdom. And what we see as we work through the gospel of Luke is that women play a major role in Luke's narrative. And he gives us a summary of that here, right? Not only did they travel with Jesus, but verse three says, they provided out of their means for the mission, didn't they? But not only does Jesus take on female disciples, Luke shows us here that he also takes on female disciples from different social walks of life. We have Mary Magdalene, who Jesus freed from the torment of seven seven demons, other women, who Jesus healed and ministered to, like the sinful woman in chapter 7 that we looked at last week, from the bottom of society. And then we have Joanna, who was the wife of one of Herod's household managers and thus had a high place in society. So we see that the gospel that Jesus preached invaded even the household of the evil king Herod, who you'll remember arrested John the Baptist and later had him killed. Further, Joanna, you'll see her name one other time in Luke's gospel. You know where she's at? She's with Mary at the tomb of Jesus in Luke twenty-four ten. She's a long-term follower, wasn't she? What what does all this tell us? It tells us and reminds us once again that Jesus' kingdom is is different than any other kingdom the world had ever seen. Jesus' kingdom spans across both genders and all social and economic statuses. And this summary in 1 through 3 will also play a factor as we continue through the text, okay? So keep that in your pocket. Then we see in verses 4 through 15, Jesus tells this parable, then he explains it, right? Right? And then he uh, explains the purpose of parables. Then he explains what the parable in particular means. The the parable is this. A sower went to sow seed. He tossed it to and fro throughout the field in different types of soil. Three of which did not penetrate enough to establish roots. So they did not germinate. They fell on the path, the rocks, and the thorns. So no root. But in one type. The seed established roots and yielded a respectable harvest, right? It bore fruit and it grew. Jesus concludes the parable by saying this, and this is a key one. If you write in your Bibles or your scripture journals, this is important for this passage. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hearing is a key factor in the interpretation of this parable and for the very purpose of parables themselves. Well, the disciples know Jesus enough up to this point, right? To know that Jesus was not giving them pointers on wise agricultural practices, right? But was illustrating something about God and the kingdom. So they asked Jesus, what does this parable mean? And Jesus says that to them has been given the secrets or mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to others, parables like this conceal truths from those who have rejected Jesus. In other words, Jesus tells the disciples that the word of God divides people into two groups. And that this parable in particular functions this way. So even though there's four soils, right? There's four different types of soils in this parable. There's really only two groups of people. Those who hear the word of God about Jesus and respond obediently. And then those who hear but do not hear. They hear in a literal sense, but they don't hear in the spiritual sense. Do you understand? Their hearing doesn't have a lasting effect. That's the first three soils, right? On their hearts and their lives. In all three of the soils that don't take root, we see that outside factors intervene and prevent the seed from producing fruit. They hear. If you just go along the parable, you see in every one it says they hear. They hear, they hear, they hear, right? They hear, they receive in some sense, but they don't truly hear. Now, when I say hearing, but not hearing, I think every parent can relate to this. Don't you? You know when you tell something to your kid, you give them instructions to do something, you give them advice or a lesson about something, and you know they heard you physically, but they didn't really hear you. Right? Because they go and do the opposite of what you said or they don't follow the instructions that you gave. Can you relate to this, parents? My kids don't do this because they're angels. Okay? But everybody else is, I'm sure. (laughs) You can relate to this. They heard you. But they didn't hear you. Right? But now, kids, don't feel bad because your parents were at one time the kids who heard but didn't hear. Okay? So don't feel bad. It's the circle of life. Jesus And you'll grow up and you'll have kids who don't listen to you either. Jesus says that people hear, but the difference between merely listening and actually hearing is shown through bearing fruit over time. This is the key, right? It is the fruit of lifelong obedience. Lifelong obedience that shows that one has been rooted in the gospel of Jesus. And these first three soils show that they didn't really hear for for. None of them bear fruit. None of them have longevity. So Jesus does something he typically doesn't do, which is explaining the parable right away. He says that the seed is the word of God, which if we think back to verse one, means that Jesus is the sower, isn't he? Since Jesus is the one who proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. He throws the seed, he's the initiator, he's the first actor in salvation. But those who the seed reaches must do something with it, right? So while man cannot initiate salvation, it's up to each person how they respond. Will they really hear? Will they let the root be established or not? That's another major factor in the story, right? Being rooted in the word of God is the difference between those who are ultimately saved and those who are not. In the first three soils, no root is established because other factors, right? Come and ensure it never happens. And there should be no surprise when no fruit is produced. Now you don't have to have a green thumb to know the importance of roots for a plant, right? You all know the importance of roots for a plant. Roots provide anchor, right? Needed to keep the plant in place. They act as a lifeline for the plants. They take up air, water, and nutrients from the soil and move them into the plant, to the leaves, where they can interact with sunlight to produce sugars and flavors and energy for the plant. So without a root, the plant can easily be taken from the ground, right? They couldn't get water or nutrients, and they couldn't produce fruit or healthy leaves. Roots are crucial to plants' life, right? And their growth and their longevity. No root, no growth. No root, no life. No root, no longevity. Without the word of Christ taking root into the life of the person, do you see? No salvation is possible. And that is evidenced over a long period of time. Is that not plain here? None of the first three soils establish a root, and that's shown eventually. But what does Jesus say at the end of verse 15? The good soil produces good fruit with patience, right, or perseverance. So Jesus says the first soil, what we could call the hard heart, let's call the first soil the hard heart. It's actually a path, right? But they hear, Jesus says, they heard. The problem isn't with the seed, which is the word of God. The problem is the receptivity of the soil. The soil has little chance As the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. In short order, the devil comes and prevents the seed from taking root. Daryl Bach says, for such people, hearing is the most that happens. There's no attraction to the message or reflection on it. So this first soil, they come in with a hard heart. They were never receptive to the message. They don't want it. They never wanted it. And they won't hear it even if it's plainly told to them. No consideration is given of the gospel's truthfulness or its beauty. It's dismissed out of hand. The heart is too hard for the word of Christ to infiltrate it. But now notice that out of the three soils, did you notice this? That don't find root with the seed that the only the first one involves the devil. The other two are other outside factors that Satan may use But they aren't the devil taking the word away. They are things of life that tempt people away from lifelong followership. The second soil is what we might call the superficial heart. The superficial heart. Jesus says these are like the rocky ground. And they hear the word also, but they actually receive it with joy. But what happens? Because they have no root. They believe for a little while. And then things get hard. And they what? Fall. Fall away these are those who hear the gospel they get pumped about it they might walk an aisle they raise their hand they're excited but then the circumstances of life extinguish their excitement you see they wanted the benefits of the gospel they wanted the heaven when they die but they didn't, they didn't count the cost they, they didn't realize that the fall of Jesus meant things would actually get harder not easier They didn't realize that Jesus isn't interested in being a part-time savior or a cosmic genie in the bottle, but intends to upend your life and be your king. This is what prosperity gospel does, is it not? what the prosperity gospel preachers peddle. They sell health and wealth and a vivacious life and tell people that God, what God wants is to be a tool, to get all those things. And that's all he wants. Point is, the gospel is packaged as a product for consumption that has no cost. But is that the true gospel? Neil Postman said in his classic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it's another kind of religion altogether. You might have even seen this short-term excitement and then falling away in your own life. Someone will come to church. Have you seen this? They'll come to church. They'll seem to be excited and converted, and they seem all about it, and then something happens in their life. Or they realize that church life can be messy, you know, because it involves people, and they fall away. You stop seeing them. Like the revivalism that we talked about in the intro, people who respond quickly and excitedly is a good thing but it's a poor measurement of true gospel receptivity. Says Jesus, one can easily be pumped for the gospel. This is not what he said. You can be pumped for the gospel. You can be excited, give all the right emotions and responses, but then faced with challenges, conclude that it isn't worth it. That's possible. Jesus says those people never had the root to begin with. Again, the appeal is to Longevity. The short time following Christ shows they didn't follow him at all. Why? Because being a disciple of Jesus isn't about a one-time conversion event. It's about a lifetime of following. Says Klein Snodgrass, faith that is temporary and unproductive is not true faith. Most pastors would be quite happy if people received the word with joy or made claims about faith, but this parable asserts that people can receive the word with joy and still be guilty of hardness of heart. With the second soil, what they want is God to immediately solve all their problems. So when they make a profession and then encounter some kind of hardship, they conclude that God is not doing what they think he ought to do. And they abandon the faith. Those people, says Jesus, were never actually converted because the root of the word about the gospel never took hold in their hearts. This is a danger for us too, isn't it? Even we identify as the good soil, is this not a danger for us too? Do we not allow, I've done this, you've done this, do we not allow circumstances in our lives to bring us to false conclusions about God's love and care for us? We must then be careful to not allow our trouble to choke out the word of God in us. The fact of the gospel does not change just because we have trials. If anything, trials should drive us closer to God and deeper into gospel dependence on Jesus. In fact, that's their very purpose. But for some, trials cause them to abandon the faith that they once seemed so excited about. Now, yeah, I'm reminded of a character in the classic story by John Bunny in The Pilgrim's Progress. If you're unfamiliar, this is, of course, an allegory for the Christian life. And the main character in the story's name is Christian. And he's making his way to the celestial city, okay, which is heaven. Well, on his way to celestial city, one of the characters he meets is a man named Mr. Pliable. Mr. Pliable. When Christian tells him he's going to the celestial city, Mr. Pliable decides to join him. And he links arm with him, and they excitedly head out with Christian. Uh, I want you to listen to what John Bunyan says. He says, as and Christian find themselves walking together towards the narrow gate, we see the stark contrast between the two pilgrims. One is birded, the other is not. One is clutching a book that is a light to his path. The other is guideless. One is on a journey in pursuit of deliverance from besetting sins and a rest for his soul. The other is on a journey in order to obtain future delights that temporarily dazzle his mind. One is slow and plodding because of his great weight and sense of his own unrighteousness; the other is light-footed and impatient to obtain all benefits of heaven. One is in motion because his soul has been stirred up to both fear and hope; the other is dead to any spiritual fears, longings, or aspirations. One is seeking God; the other is seeking self-satisfaction. One is a true pilgrim; the other is false and fading. Well, you know what happens to them as they're heading on their way. Pliable and Christian encounter a pit. And they both fall in. And as they're in the pit, Mr. Pliable lashes out at Christian and says that this life isn't what he thought it would be. He says, it's not worth the trouble. And so he climbs out of the pit and he heads home and he abandons his pursuit of the celestial city. This is the perfect picture of the second type of person. They respond with joy, but when trouble comes, it's shown that they never truly had the root of the word. Hardship come and they decide it isn't worth it and they abandon what could have been a life of discipleship. Now let's just serve as an encouragement and a warning to you, my friends. Hardships are guaranteed, do you know this? Hardships are guaranteed in this life. And following Jesus does not mean there will be few difficulties. It means, actually, there will be more. The difference, however, is we have a Savior who traversed them before us. And is with us through them. And that we know all things are in his hands. We can take comfort then. Knowing that all things work out for our good and his ends. Even as we struggle. But we need to be careful that hardships aren't used either. Because I've seen this. As an excuse to not be in the word. Or to keep us from regularly gathering with God's people. That's what Satan wants. Satan wants. But what Jesus calls us to is actually leveraging hardships to drive us ever further into the word and dependence on Christ and in the fellowship of the redeemed who can navigate the darkness with us. Now we can all understand, I think, how hardship can be a danger to take away zeal for the gospel. But What about the next one that Jesus lists? The third soil is soil that is among the thorns. And I think we could call this one the divided heart. Let's call this the divided heart. They hear, right? They hear also, but as they go on their way, they're choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and the fruit doesn't mature. See, Jesus believes that prosperity and riches and pleasure are just as dangerous to rootedness in him as persecution and hardship. Actually, I think it could be argued that sees wealth and pleasure as a bigger danger to people from getting and continuing the gospel because more is said by him about wealth than almost any other topic. Kevin DeYoung is right when he says, busyness kills more Christians than bullets. He says, for most of us, it isn't heresy or rank apostasy that derail our profession of faith. It's the worries of life. You can relate to this. What keeps you more from getting more of Jesus than anything else? It's not persecution. Is it not your busy schedule? Is it all the things you have to get done? Don't you have things you got to get done? Is it not the desire for more stuff and more pleasure and more success? Is it not hobbies and entertainment? Is it not your anxiety? Is it not that something else will always and inevitably pop up that demands your attention and your time and your energy and your zeal? And what's so scary about this is that the things Jesus lists aren't even bad things. And therein lies a the snare. Good things can edge out the best things, and we could justify all of them. I mean, truly, truly, how many of us actually think that we're in danger of this? How often do we sit around and think, boy, I'm very greedy? Or, boy, I stretch myself too thin with stuff I've taken on voluntarily? Or how often do we feel convicted that our pursuit of pleasure and wealth and leisure is a problem that we need to do something about? And then respond. (laughs) John Piper says this, the pleasures of this life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts of God. There are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking and all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. Now press press into Jesus' picture a little more. What is the problem? It's thorns. Yes? This is a picture of gradual, slow, subtle choking. It's almost, it's so slow. It's almost unknowingly happening, isn't it? Isn't that how Thorne's work? That's the biggest danger because this kind of gradual drifting and divided loyalties is hard to notice. And they're easy to justify. And no one sets out to have divided loyalties, But slowly we add and we add. Is this true of your life? And we add. None of these things we have to do. And we add and we add until Jesus becomes more and more and more on the peripheries of our life. This reminds me of the Kudza vine. Have you ever heard of that before? Kudza vine. The kudzu is a twining vine that was introduced to the United States from Japan in the late 19th century. Originally, it was marketed as an ornamental plant that could be used for shading on porches. Okay? But before long, things got out of control. It's now known as the vine that ate the south. <laughs> because it spread out of control. People didn't realize that it was a quiet killer. It would overtake grow, and grow over anything in its path. And what it does is it outcompetes everything from native grasses to fully mature trees by shading them from sunlight that they need to photosynthesize. It smothers other plants. One source says it now covers over 7 million acres in the southeastern United States. Power companies spend $1.5 million a year to repair the damage to the power lines, but it's been gradual. During growing season, it grows about a foot per day. A foot per day. But you don't hear it or notice it until it's too late. Next thing you know, it's smothered other life from growing and bearing fruit. The same thing may very well be happening to you and your spiritual life. Not me, Vaughn. Well, how do you know? How do you know? Look at your life. What do you prioritize? what do you make time for what makes you anxious and worried something even a good thing may be choking out your fruitfulness like the kudzu vine along the roads jesus says that fruitfulness fruitfulness can be prevented by excessive concern about one's welfare and possessions and comfort just as well as a threat of persecution can And this is the biggest danger we have as Americans, isn't it? Which is why we should all take this as a serious warning. Satan doesn't need to use persecution in America to get us to renounce Jesus with our mouths because he knows we've given ourselves over to prosperity to the point that we could very well deny Jesus with our lives instead. The danger here is health and wealth and comfort. Things we would never classify as danger but those will keep more people out of heaven than hardship ever could. Because the key to gospel receptivity is recognition of neediness and helplessness, which is far more difficult to come by when you feel you need nothing and you're distracted by getting more and more. Jesus says that the danger of these distractions is that the word is crowded out and choked off by the energy and priority given to these other concerns. It's misplaced priorities. And so it's so easy, so subtle, so easy to justify and so deadly. Fox says on this topic, the issue is not that such things are insignificant, but that they are not to have first place and thus destroy one's personal spiritual reception of the word. The word and obedience to Christ must be the priority for the Christian. And Jesus shows us this truth in the fourth soil, doesn't he? Which we could call the fruitful heart. Let's call the fourth soil the fruitful heart. Says Jesus, as for the good soil, these are those who, hearing the word, hold fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So this is the only good soil. It has three keys. Did you notice the three keys that Jesus lists? Number one, an honest and responsive heart. Two, a holding fast or a clinging to the word. And three, patience or hope or a waiting patiently on God. So this soil hears the word about Christ. It really hears. They really allow the word to confront their sin and their alienation from God, their need for outside rescue found exclusively in Christ, and they thus run to him and submit to his person. But note that this isn't a one-time event for this good soil, is it? This person goes to Jesus, not once, but over and over and over and over again. This person clings to the Word as a posture of life. This person is honest with the state of their heart. They rest in the promises of Christ. They know that they are saved because of the sower, not because of their ability to bear fruit. And this actually leads to bearing fruit. Jesus is after lifelong followership. Do you realize this? Jesus isn't after people who will only claim him in a single moment. Or people who will follow him as long as things are going their way. Or people who put him on the peripheries of their lives and give him a tenth of their devotion. What Jesus is after is good soil that clings to him and bears fruit with patient perseverance. Jesus is calling for those who hear the word to neither be ruined by trials nor distracted by shiny things of the world, but ones who cling to him at all times in the good and the bad and live for the kingdom that's beyond this world. Jesus is calling for a hearing that remains focused on the kingdom in such a way that they're defined by it. They they persevere, they continue to hold fast, and they return every day to the gospel. That's good soil. I think again of our friend Christian in The Pilgrim's Progress and a few other characters he met along the way. See, as Christian is on his journey to the celestial city, he looks, he sees two men tumble over the fence. (laughs) They jump over the wall. Their names were Formalist and Hypocrisy. They think the gate to the celestial city is too far away and that the narrow gate that leads to it is not worth it, but they still want to get in. They think they could take a shortcut and avoid all the unpleasant and difficult things. Well, they walk on, and all three of them come to the bottom of a very steep hill. Very steep hill, and there's roads that go up the hill, and one on the right, and one on the left. The one that goes straight up is called difficulty. Formalists and hypocrisy, they you know what they do? They look up the hill, they see how difficult it is, and they go <laughs> to the easier way, which actually leads to destruction, but they don't know that yet. Christian, of course, heads up the narrow way and the steep hill called difficulty. And as Christian heads up the steep climb, a couple of people come running from the other direction down the hill. And they say, the further you go, the more danger we encounter. So they didn't think it was worth it. And they forget all this noise and they left. But Christian says, you make me afraid. But on the other hand, where else could I flee for safety? If I could get to the celestial city, I am sure to be safe there. I must press onward. And so he does, and he continually turns to the scroll in his pocket for comfort and for guidance, and eventually Christian makes it to the celestial city. You see the difference between Christian and nearly every other character throughout the whole book? He's one of the only ones who endures and presses on even when it's difficult. He's thus one of the only ones who make it to the celestial city. Bunyan was trying to show us that the Christian life is not one of an instant decision and that's it. He's showing us what Jesus is communicating with the good soil here. Following him is truly to follow him. To make the decision every day to follow him, even when it's hard. Even when the shiny wares of Vanity Fair try to dazzle your eyes. You continue to keep your eyes on Jesus and find comfort in his word and promise, bearing fruit that comes from attachment with him, and for how long? Your whole life. We should find comfort, I think, in this fourth soil, don't you think? Knowing that following Jesus and bearing fruit are a long process, isn't that good? I think that's good news. I think that's good news. I know in our culture we want the quick and we want the easy and the instant gratification and the visible success right away, but the kingdom of Christ, it doesn't work like that. We are plants in the ground, and as long as we're rooted in Jesus, fruit will come, but only with patience. Growth in Christ is slow. You ever been frustrated at your progress? (laughs) You ever been, like, troubled by, I should be farther, (laughs) I should be bearing more fruit. I should be killing sin easier. Take heart, my friend. That's not how the kingdom works. This growth in Christ is slow, but it happens if we tap into the ordinary means of grace every day for the rest of our lives. It would be silly. If I plant a tree in my backyard with a seed, and as soon as it pops up out of the ground, I get frustrated for its lack of fruit bearing and chop it down. Trees don't bear fruit that quick. They need time and patience. Don't you think there's a reason why Jesus uses this picture? Says Bach once more, fruit is never a matter of an overnight exercise. It takes nurturing. Thus, Jesus' teaching does not look at the reaction to God's word in a single moment, but over a period of time. It takes time to bear fruit, just as it takes time for weeds to choke the seed or for lack of root in a plant to become evident. Don't you see? You know, the same is true, isn't it, for church life? Quick and easy fixes and seeker-friendly marketing approaches seem like the way to go because then you can easily get people in the door, yes, raise a hand, or walk an aisle. But that, what happens when things get hard? What happens when you make quick converts and not lifelong disciples? You know, you know what happens, don't you? There's excitement for a little while, but then life happens, programs change, things get tough, and they fall away. This is why God doesn't call us to shiny marketing techniques to get people to respond to our ingenuity so we could claim success because of our fast-growing numbers and say, look what we did. Instead, he calls us to ordinary faithfulness that tosses seed and relies on him to provide the growth. And if it doesn't happen as quick as we want to, well, them's the brakes. God is sovereign, and he promised fruit for faithfulness, but it's on his time, not ours. He makes plants grow, not us. And so we can take no credit for success. But he also measures success differently. Are we willing to do the hard work of making disciples for a lifetime? Or do we resign ourselves to the quick and easy, to the success we could achieve without God? But also realize that this parable is confronting us all. Is it not? That's what it's designed to do, right? to confront and to force us to analyze how have we responded to God's message through Jesus? Have we really heard? Which soil are we? Does pressure make one timid or cause abandonment of faith? Does indulging in the pursuit of wealth or undisciplined pleasure come before devotion to God? Is faith solid and fruit-bearing? What does Jesus say in verse 18? You need to take care how you hear. And your response to him will show what kind of listener you are. It will expose where the heart is. Now, Jesus gives this other parable. Do you see how it fits? Jesus gives another parable. Then Luke tells us that Jesus' family is trying to get to him. And then he says, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, these seem pretty disconnected to the parable of the sower. But do you see how it's all working together, even with verses 1 through 3? In 16 and 17, Jesus gives what's called a truism, right? And says that you don't turn a light on and then cover it up. That's just logic. I mean, have you walked into your house, turned the lamp on, thrown a heavy blanket over it? No. Of course not. that defeats the purpose when it's nonsensical. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying that he and his word are the light that reveals the things of God and each person must choose how they respond to it. If the light is hidden, it isn't the light's fault. It's because, let's mix our metaphors because this is the point, it's because the soil on which it falls. The light of Jesus' word illumines, but one must be willing to receive it like the good soil was willing to receive the seed and be rooted in Christ and the word. And this light is It reveals all things. Isn't that what Jesus says? It will be revealed at the end of the age which soil you were. This light, it illumines and it exposes. It shows you who you really are before a holy God. But you must choose how you respond to it. And then when you receive it, will you reflect it? When you receive this light, will you reflect the light? Will you produce good fruit in keeping with repentance and be a light to those in darkness? In other words, verse 18, will you take care how you heard the word and then do it? He's saying there that those who have heard the word and truly received it must steward it rightly or they will lose it. If we are the fourth soil, then we're called to shine the light of the gospel to those who are still in present darkness. Yes? Yes? But we're not the light ourselves, are we? But we were merely reflect the light of Jesus. You think about the moon it's a perfect illustration. The moon could shine at night. It has no light, right? It's a rock. It has no light of its own. Why does it light up? Because it reflects the light from the true source. But it still lights up the night sky, doesn't it? A full moon is bright and reveals and exposes things that are in the darkness, and so must we. Jesus says It matters. How you hear, because that is what defines you. You see now how hearing is key to this section. Do you see it? He exhorts us to take care how we hear in verse 18. Then we see Jesus' family trying to get to him, and he says his family is comprised of who? Those who hear the word and do it. He says, take care how you hear. He says, his family are those who hear and do the word. In verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, hear. Hear, hear, hear. And only those in verse 15 hear well and produce fruit of doing the word of God. Only they hear and do. You know what this looks like? It looks like the disciples and the women in verses one through three, doesn't it? They hear the word about the kingdom of Christ and they commit themselves to costly followership. They encounter Jesus and they're never the same like Simon the tax collector who left all to follow Jesus and like the woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears in the previous section. And they never stop following, even when it costs, even when Jesus was in the tomb and Joanna and Mary are outside it when they thought all was lost. And every disciple, do you know this, to the person, suffered because of their attachment to Jesus. And all of them thought him worth it and they persevered. Don't you see that Jesus is saying here that receiving the word is more than simple mental, intellectual assent and agreement about the message? It must be expressed in action. The ones who Jesus identifies with the most are those who respond to the word. Not because these deeds save But these deeds show forth that one really and truly has heard and seen the light of Christ and has made the commitment every day to make Jesus the center of their being. Friend, let me ask you how do you hear? How do you hear the word? How do you hear the word of God and the commands of Christ? When you come to this place, do you prepare beforehand? Do you take care to pray that God would work through me and through you and to illumine the word and to convict and comfort you, to exhort and challenge you, or do you come with no prep and no prayer with your mind already made up? Is your heart hard or is it prayerfully ready to be simultaneously confronted by the word and comforted by Christ's beauty? Is your heart distracted by the anxieties of the previous week or the worries of the coming one? Is it distracted by the things of earth? Are the treasures and pleasures of earth stealing your attention and your affection? Or do you truly listen to the word of God? And if you do, does that translate to doing the word as you reflect the light of the gospel to those around you every day? Do you guys see the high honor of being in Jesus' family? He says you're his brother, you're his sister, his mother. What an honor. And he wants to be near you. And does that reality propel you and how you live? Jesus is saying in this passage, how you hear the word of God reveals something about your heart. And it reveals who you are in relation to him. Don't worry, I'm about done. Take care how you hear. Take care how you hear, friend. And let that hearing take root in your heart. And respond to Jesus and live for his kingdom because it's been given to you to steward. Don't waste it.